Welcome to the Cosmic Salon, and I would like to talk about how this remarkable woman has come into my life, and it's a two-part prong here, a sounding fork, if you will. I had seen her tarot deck, Tarot of the Holy Light, around, and somehow the cover art, which is beautiful, didn't pull me in enough to look further as I have a million tarot decks and have been reading tarot a very long time and it takes something very special for me to add now to the collection I'm trying to thin. And so I was on Instagram of all places and I saw this tarot spread with these remarkable cards and I inquired. They actually didn't say what the deck was, who the deck was from. So I inquired and I had, uh, I got the information that they came from Christine Payne Towler and her husband had constructed the art. I ordered the books going with the two books that correspond with it. And then of course some special items, a large, a very large format book and uh, something else. And so when they came I was excited and I immediately pulled them out, consecrated them and started working with them. And they have taken over from that day forward, my working deck that has been my bread and butter of cards, the alchemical deck. I have not used his deck since they are remarkable. I told Joe Roop of Lighting the Void about this. Uh, I've just been spreading the gospel of this deck. And so then when I started to dig in deeper about who is this Christine with this amazing deck, I realized that I had seen Christine's footprint forever and never realized she's out there everywhere. Her words are out there everywhere. It was just one of those moments where you know you're deeply influenced by someone and yet you don't know who that someone is until you cross paths, so to speak. And my crossing paths with having a realization of who these words were, I had been reading different articles from, the name was just in and out, uh, strangely. And I'm an avid reader, but it just didn't stick until the deck came. And so with that, I am going to bring on this amazing woman, Christine Payne Teller. Welcome to the Cosmic Salon. Thank you very much, Nish. That was an amazing introduction. You know, you have no idea who you are until you hear it back from other people. Yes. Well, this is one of the reasons why I do my intros in this way rather than the kind of dry bio way. Let's give a little bio, let you tell some of the the points in your life that have led you here. I have read through everything I could find, so it's you are impressive. You're intimidating, actually. <laughs> 
well. <laughs> you never know why these things might be true. You know, the universe gave me the sun conjunct Saturn, conjunct Neptune, conjunct Mercury in Libra. Oh, my. So, I'm, and then Venus in Scorpio right next to so, girl. You know, I was set up for something, and this must be it, because this is how, this is how it stands. I believe in this lifetime I'm a golf ball. And you know how they're wired layer after layer of tight rubber bands <laughs> and then it's tight tape. So when they're hit, they're very springy. And that's what the universe has done with me since the beginning. It'll give me a smack and send me off in one direction and I'll fly. And then it will give me a smack and send me off in another direction. And those smacks have included the opportunity to study mysticism and parapsychology in the Bay Area in the mid-70s. That's my degree. The having of brilliant children who were each one of them, a handful and an opportunity, and they're still like stars thrilling their way through the universe. The opportunity to live on the West Coast, without which I don't think I could be who I am. The seismic situation is also my native land, and so the level of piezoelectricity and exchange between the sun and the earth is very strong here. And so I think that has helped uh, form my instrument in a certain way. But the real pivotal thing from the question you're asking happened just before I went off to college. And that was I took a training in 1969. No, it must have been 1970. Took a, they called it mind dynamic training. And it was just two weekends of just do this exercise, now do this exercise, now do this exercise. Almost no lecture, taught by an idiot savant, you know, somebody who had no background himself in metaphysical training but was good at delivering the pattern. And this course just unzipped me. I didn't even realize at the time what was going on, but everything that was suggested was not only easy but super enhanced. So it made for a very psychedelic two weekends. And at the end, I did a remote diagnosis of somebody I didn't even know, and suddenly the name of this illness, which I had never read and never heard and never spoken before, fell out of my mouth, and it was true. That's how I graduated. Somewhere in there, I realized, or my destiny was realized, as a sensitive and a person of very elastic consciousness. Now, I've since had several diagnoses that help to underscore what the physical situation is because this is not a normal sensorium. But I'm really counting it as a body that came with presets towards self-initiation because everything I touched, it seems, through the course of my life has suddenly lit up and become multidimensional and sung me a song and sent me to the next thing. And anytime I needed a book, anytime I needed an answer, anytime I needed a new resource, it would fall out of the folds of the universe at me. So I've been very, very lucky, but I believe I was also primed for it. And now I'm almost 70, so that's a lot of years standing on this hot spot while things move around me synchronistically. Let me just say this one more thing. If you were a subscriber of the International Young Journal, uh, Psyche and Culture, I think is what they call themselves, 
you would see a large article that they requested from me that took about a year to write on synchronicity and the psyche. This was a terrifically fun project for me because I've been standing in a synchronicity well all this lifetime wondering how to work this. But I came late to Young and I never chose to become a psychotherapist or go get a PhD. I'm steeped in the mythopoetic, psycho-spiritual, multi-dimensional dream time of Jung's understanding, but I came at it through studying occultism. He came at it through using occultism to study psychology. So we're like looking in different ends of the telescope. So I had an opportunity to go down and present on occultism and Jung at the Jung Society a couple of years ago. And it was so much fun because I could just say whatever I wanted and nobody questioned my right to say it. I didn't have to prove anything to anybody because they're all up to their eyeballs in this thing. I'm feeling like the whole world is experiencing the tide rising on our psychic threshold, our collective metaphysical or psycho-spiritual capabilities. The, the water is deepening. We're getting more able to integrate this, where things that used to be separate specializations have grown. They're touching into each other. They're blending into each other, and we're now coming to a more global view of these things, which I think the Internet is a big part of, and that's, of course, what makes it possible for us to get together, because we met through Facebook connections, right? We actually met through Patrick, who I had pushed your tarot deck and your books on, and so I don't think we have a digital overlap. Well, I guess we do in him, because he approached me through Facebook. Yes, yes. And so it through that, yes. I, I'm not on Facebook, but I am on other social media just for reasons. Very hard to avoid. very networked at Facebook, and that's a terrific advantage to myself and Michael because there's our population and they're all right there. Yes, I think it's such a remarkable tool, all of it, and I'm just choosing which ones I use. What is this article you wrote, the Jungian one, Synchronicity and what? Synchronicity and Psyche. And Psyche, okay. The problem is this is their professional journal, and so if you don't subscribe, they don't print you one. I don't subscribe anymore, but I will. I used to. My biggest mentor in life, whose name went by Mariah, the metaphysician, Joe Vonstein, is, well, she's passed now a few years, but this is very interesting and synchronistic because you remind me of her. And you're in the same generation, which is would be my mother's generation. She's been dead for decades. Uh, and so Mariah was one of those overlays of the mother figure for me, but she was also heavily... Jungian slanted and so in my teens we started to work through Jung's works and uh, she got me knee deep in that and then it was over the head <laughs> was... well yeah 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 I am grateful to have come to him late you know I have copies I have several of my books on Jung I've had 30 years, but I wasn't able to read them until fairly recently. They find you. All your work is so Jungian, even though you came late to Jung's 
actual work. Right. You know what I'm right. saying? There's the synchronicity. Our roots are down in the same soil, and yeah. that's really obvious. It has to do with the education I got at JFKU because these were last divinity students who had also been dropouts at Harvard and were now putting together on the West Coast, putting together a program that would allow people with families and people with jobs to attend at night and on weekends. So they were teaching high-level theology, metaphysics, history of esotericism, at the level that was possible to teach in the mid-70s. Yeah. They really drilled it into us to run these things parallel. Don't just study one rut, but make sure that you're exposing yourself to something historical, something from your own culture, something from a different culture, mixing up the, the cross-pollinating yourself so that you could see not only the differences between different traditions, but where they come together, what the similarities are. Because that's the ground. The similarities is the ground of being. All the religions come together in the singularity where all the different rays are returned to the sun where they came from. Yet it's necessary to know the differences between one flavor of belief and another if you're tracking symbolism because there's a lot of implications in these different flavors. Just the way there are with herbs, right? Each herb will taste different and it will have different properties. Same with the archetypes, same with the patterns, psychodynamic patterns, astrological patterns, throw patterns. These things fall into the ripple pattern of reality and help to demonstrate what the field is doing. We're part of the, I mean, our, our human world to a large extent is the afterburn of the energy world. It comes pouring through and rearranges things, and then it cools off and hardens up, and that's what we deal with as the material plane. That overlap is so beautifully seated within the idea, or actually the geometry of the Vesica Pisces. That's where we meet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where it all comes together. And the sexagesimal grid, what a constant conclusion, after all this time, dog paddling around this giant <laughs> set of esoteric sciences, that the astronomers are the remnant of the la our last ancient civilization. And every time the astronomers hold on to the technology the longest and let it go the hardest, and therefore there's something left, and that's where we pick up every time we're, we have one of these 14,000-year Earth change cycles, and have to go back to living in caves, it's the astronomers who pull us back into numeracy and geometry so that we can begin to educate ourselves again and come back out and start a new civilization. So I've just come to this conclusion from trying to read and study everything. Again, what I was taught, look at where everything comes together, also look at where it diverges, because there's evidence of both. And you, you don't want to fool yourself if one is the other. Where everything seems to come together in the esoteric arts is astronomy and the basic math that you learn from studying him. So somehow, as creatures in caves, however you might envision that around the world, the last time we were bombed back to Stone Age by cosmic forces, we, were, we had such similar brains as what we have now. We were able to rebuild everything 
by looking at stars and studying how they work and training our minds to then bring that, those rhythms and those cycles down to earth in our buildings, in our, uh, our light rhythms, our cycles, our governments, our uh, laws, we've all built astronomically from what we remembered the last time we were a big high civilization. So this happens over and over, I think. And we're at one of those crash points again. But that's just my politics. That's why I do what I do, because my teachers were dead when I found them. And I think in many ways my students are going to be on the other side of uh, my life. So my job has been to carry the torch, you know, pick it up where it was dropped and carry it to whoever's going to pick it up next. Because we can't afford to forget our Masonic and astronomical heritage, or we just really do fly back. This is something I think we should get clarity on for listeners that do not understand the root of Masonic as we move backwards in time and not the order that formed in the 1700s. And this is, before we go into that, you in that wonderful presentation on astrotheology, which will be in the show notes, and I highly recommend everyone tune into that. It's absolutely brilliant. With that very ancient compass, astrological wheel that goes way back before Christ, which is something that you're referring to here, basically, with these resets. And the Masonic stuff with the 12 knotted rope or the Druid's cord, as some people know in, in the Druidic tradition, and witches as well, this idea has found its way all over the board. So let's move into a little bit of that foundational stone, if you will, the cornerstone of what that really means. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, um, because you can spend all day talking around and about something, but at a certain point you need to plant your staff, right? Yes. And start somewhere. So when we take on, when we look at history from a Masonic point of view, what Masons have done is make observatories. They have created different kinds of structures for different periods, whether they're ziggurats or pyramids or cathedrals or mosques or uh, temples. All around the world, you find these sacred buildings, and they are oriented astronomically. They're oriented to the center pole of the heavens, which has been analogized to north in terms of flattening the compass for terrestrial purposes. But you have a worldview that encompasses the four directions as well as above and below. So you're locating the human inside an expanded molecule of space, both deep space up above and interior space underfoot, you know, down in the earth. And also then the four directions of rays around. And with the, with the staff, which is exactly the same height as the practitioner and the 12-knotted cord, so it has 13 sections, you have a geometrical tool 
that you can use as your compass and you're platting out the sacred year. So by camping in the same place over a period of time, you learn where the sun rises on the first day of spring and where it rises at the high point of summer or where it rises at the first day of fall and then the high point of winter and then you've got your compass established. At least you, you, can, you can see the range of how the earth is tumbling around the sun and what direction, for example, the temple has to face in order for the sunrise to hit the door, in order for all the doors and windows and other apertures to admit certain rays of light at certain times of day or night that are, in the building itself becomes a timepiece and it becomes also a accurate predictor of celestial phenomena which then set up the sacred calendar for the year. So Masons couldn't do this. They couldn't do this if they didn't have a canon of measurement that simultaneously was flexible enough to embrace the movements of the planet, the shifting dynamics of the year as the Earth, you know, wobbles like a top slowly but steadily, creating succession of equinoxes as well as other phenomena. Uh, if they couldn't visualize correctly how the Earth sat amongst all the other moving parts of the solar system, they would not be able to build their building in a way that would stand for however long it was needed to stand. Now, you're going to have one degree of change every 77 years. So after two or three hundred years, a new building would have to be built in order to get that sunrise alignment again. But the Masons understood this and they understood how to build interior spaces, not just exterior spaces, not just cosmic alignment, but also interior spaces within the building that would create human alignment, all in the scale of an actual human, so that you could have harmonically tuned rooms, healing rooms, rooms that are tuned sonically to, as well as color-wise, for therapeutics and for, um, you know, consciousness expansion. They had the skill, these masons, and this is from all over the world, from the simple wood building or mat building societies all the way up to those that created elaborate landscapes full of temple complexes. Everybody's doing this. Even the Polynesians out on their boats are weaving maps of the wave patterns, knowing that it's reflecting the uh, orientations in space and orientations of the sky. So anybody who's doing navigation has all the same information as people who are building cathedrals. So around the world, these people found each other, whether you're talking about the years BC or AD, it doesn't matter. There have been every kind of cross-pollination around the world, and some Scholars have been able to track this by watching the rate at which indigenous civilizations corrected their lunar mathematics so that they could hook in with the solar. You could see when the Phoenician ephemeris, the Babylonian ephemeris, went around the world because suddenly people who were practicing lunar magic make a huge jump and they've, they've got the ephemeris even with the errors that were built into it from the Babylonian time. Once that ephemeris came in, then 
astronomy sophisticates considerably and the potential for the priesthood to predict and control the future get much higher. But then there's a second measure, which is when a civilization that has been given the ephemeris finally makes those corrections. That's when they're producing mathematicians of their own. That's how now the external priesthood where the ancient Babylonian priesthood put together the first ephemeris and taught the world how to do it. Now the civilization who got that ephemeris is finally working their way up to sophistication to the point where they can correct it and develop a science of their own with it. So this is why there's so many astronomy all over the world. There's you know, all different traditions hanging on this 360-degree wheel and this 12-spoke idea. It's just really marvelous to see how the collective mind works, that this information constantly trickles back up, because we apparently just spend a heck of a lot of human time standing outside looking at the sky and calculating in our heads what it means, what we're looking at. Not only the sky at night, but also in the daytime. We still have the writings from the Greek philosophers who demonstrated the way they did their figuring about the size of the Earth by watching what the shadow did falling down the well at exactly uh, right at the equator versus 40 degrees away. And they could see, oh, or 40, what they called miles or stadia away. They could see from that distance that the Earth had that was X amount of the size of the sphere, and this whole sphere had to be that multiple of that. So, our, again, we're talking about people anatomically identical to ourselves who have brains just like ours, who figured it out without computers by staring at the sky and keeping track, you know, little notches on their sticks and cuneiform tablets, and put together this or, or reassembled this ancient and eternal model of where we sit in the cosmogonic space around us. So this is why I, uh, I picked up on this word architectonic when I first heard it. It's, it's from a Masonic worldview point of view. That a person who is thinking architectonically is linking not only the geometry of the sphere, but the literal Masonic implications of square. This is why the modern Masons, one of their symbols is a sphere with a triangle inside of it and it's positioned directly inside the square. So we're squaring the circle or circling the square and within it we find the sacred triangle. And once you know the geometry of all these things that you can build what you need and you are these are the degrees of masonry that set you up to be cosmogonically and architectonically informed. It comes forward as the axiom of Moriah as we move into some of the alchemical works that, say, the Rosicrucians were yep. bringing forward, the gates of the Avatar, and all this with the transcended energy. I have two points here. When I was listening to you just now and then having just gone through that presentation earlier today, the nomads versus the people that were stable and able to really 
clock the skies above and get an idea of how everything was moving and churning. Of course, this is a inner space and outer space. But the nomads were important, the Phoenicians, so with moving this information around and disseminating these ideas and these alphabets. Where I wanted to go with that was something that I think falls short on modern ears, and this is the personification of these celestial bodies. Yeah, which is the basis of medical astrology coming forward from where the Renaissance man I got it from Arabic sources. So there's a whole, like you said, the nomads, there's an entire, you might call African wing of the mysteries that we're just rediscovering because they, I suppose, European and therefore Western civilization is still very resistant to the addition of Islam to the canon, but this is another religion of the book. It forms, you know, another set of the children of Abraham and also completely grounded and rooted in the same sacred alphabet because if we may have the most access to the Hebrew traditions about the alphabet, but Hebrew's written in Aramaic, <laughs> so it's the Islamic alphabet as much as it is. Jewish, there's no difference in the usage, although most different languages there might be different punctuations because different languages make certain different unique sounds. So alphabets morph and mutate, but they they are all actually uh, you know from the same mother, you could say, the Babylonian mother root, and they stem from ephemerence. This is what I think Jung was witnessing, because he could read in 20 languages. He could see the linguistic roots going back and forth between the different languages and realize that there's a meta-transmission of the unconscious talking to itself through the root languages that ride underneath our patois, any particular vocabulary that any particular person is using. No matter how educated they are, they're going to be deeply influenced by the time. So anyway, I'm sorry I'm straying away from what your question was. But I love a meander, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to say is alchemy is the very next step out of astrology. Because astrology is the constant registration of what is and what is and what is and what is. If you could travel a little bit and look backwards and see what just happened, or you could look a little bit forward and see what's going to happen. But basically just keeping up with the profundity of incoming reality is astrology's best use, that we can see the symbols or see the planets moving and also see the events arriving at our doorstep in complete synchronicity, and that allows us to see, oh, yes, there is order in the world. Now I just have to understand the significance of this order. So that's the first thing, to grok the astronomical basis and realize we are inside of a moving machine that is acting on us through us, and part of our job is to become aware of the moving part. But that immediately puts us in line to start thinking about alchemy, because then we realize whatever kind of trouble we're in, whether it's illness or psychological or, again, financial or cultural, I mean, everybody finds themselves that they're coming awake, they realize, oh, i got to straighten this or that out, you know not going to behave 
asleep at the wheel anymore. I'm going to tighten up my act or I'm going to cut off certain places where my energy is draining away because I want that energy for something else. So you have to begin to say, all right, what is my astral constitution? What am I deficient in? What am I oversupplied with? And how can I balance and modify those things so that I don't drive myself crazy with my lopsidedness? And, of course, anybody who finds themselves on a self-cultivation path of any type has to cope with the tendency to continue to go pear-shaped because it just feels so natural. And, of course, you can see it. If you've looked at a thousand people's charts, you see there's rough patterns that people fall into, but there's no two like. Each person has to wrestle their uniqueness in the context of whatever is the collective culture. And that's the, those are the bounds of your river, the left bank and the right bank. How weird can you get and how normalized do you have to get in order to sail this river, stay alive, and then do what you came to do, which in my case, study esoterics and write about. The alchemical point of view is to, first of all, learn to discern what medicine is, separate the medicine from the poison, then cultivate the medicine so that you're ready for it and it's ready for you. You're the doctor and you're also the patient, so you have to work with your, all your ingredients so they're homeopathically pure and so that your motives are pure around them. You know, you're not dredging in the problem as you're trying to make the medicine. And then finally, you have to become the medicine. So literally, the, the real alchemical vessel is your own body, and you're learning to cultivate your succulent glands, which are synonymous with the chakra. So you're learning how to work those parts of your body that are voluntary, that they aren't on a biological cycle. They come from your own calling them forth. So you can maximize whatever you can intend into. Uh, but if you never knew to look in that direction, you'd just be running on automatic pilot. So there's this issue. There was a fellow in the 70s who wrote a book called Voluntary Control. I don't have it anymore. Or I forget his name, but he's one of the people that came out of the shamanic side of the movement saying, look, you know, it's not out there that your shamanic accomplishments have to be made. It's in here, inside the body, inside the dream time, and between the organs, and in your chemical makeup. And by the way that you run your brain chemistry and the way the thoughts you think and the things you emphasize. You know, all of this has been laid out. I mean, it's laid out every generation by new teachers because we keep having to hear it, but we, we're such materialists. Again, we live at this crusty bottom end of the elemental dispersion. So we, we mistake the things that are physical around us for reality when actually we should be looking at the things around us and saying, that's a consequence of reality. So let me derive from what's laying about the landscape what reality actually is. That's more the way an initiate thinks. It thinks the causes are invisible. What we see visible are the effects. If you have a, that habit of mind of reverse engineering what you're looking at rather than
The book, Voluntary Controls, is it the Jack Schwartz book? Yes, there you go. There you go. <laughs> now, see, it's going to read like its own period, right? It's going to read like the time. The 70s? Yeah, there's only so much that was available to his site, even though he was an academic. So, not a professor, I don't think, but he's very well respected. And a lot of people quoted him for his good sense, you know, somewhere straddling between the psychological and the shamanic. But the point is, you must take control of these things through your interior handle and not be throwing the causality out into the world. This is one of the things that I battle as a reader because people want to interpret the life as coming at them. When actually, according to Kabbalah and ancient philosophy, each one of us is a miniature sun and we're extruding life. We're like a magnet. And uh, everything in our material plane is like the iron filing. We are the force that shapes our environment. Whether we believe it or not, whether we are positive on it or negative on it, whether we are stuck in a victim modality or whether we're psychopathic conquerors, you know, it doesn't matter what your settings are or whether you've ever come to consciousness about it or not. The type of soul we have forces us, as soon as the lights come on, we're already arranging the energy around us in perfect magnetic form. Toroids of consumption and elimination as we take in and spit out and circulate everything we encounter in all of our reactions to them. But while if we don't get that clear, then we're going to be struggling all the time because we're really stuck on the outside surface of the thing and it's very distracting out there. We see this a lot, and those of us that do seek and get into the internal workings of the mechanism of the sacred egg really come to understand this and yet it's personal and it's been in my observation that when people start to realize everything without them outside of them is an emanation from within that's a a beautiful thing to witness it's a beautiful thing to come to on your own it's life-changing it it changes everything of course but it's a beautiful thing to observe in others and i do think those causality emanations join up and create bigger waves of awakening yeah i think so i think that's why i was born in exactly this generation because the program that I intend, attended at JFKU, for example, was one of the very few institutes of mysticism and parapsychology across the country. And they only lasted maybe a decade. And yeah. then came clear that it was just there weren't enough people joining. That degree program was not going to go forward. And by the time it got picked up again in Europe and on the East Coast especially, we were more mature, the academics were more mature, and they had done a lot more translating, you know, the few that really took hold most of the so in Europe, and so there was some continuation of the urge. So, of course, I had just fallen right into having my family and working in the field, and so I didn't really consider myself an academic. 
until I thought about going back to college and got a chance to meet up with a fellow who was putting together a program in Great Britain. And basically he said, oh man, this has been one of the great tragedies of the academic world that you and people like you were educated so beautifully and then there was nowhere to go with it. <laughs> uh, he said, I would love to have you in the program and you know, we would immediately take all your credits and make you a master's in this and you'd be teaching right away. But it would take a couple years for us to complete your PhD and meanwhile you'd be so bored. That <laughs> 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 was so funny. <laughs> that's the situation uh, that was at the turn of the uh, 2000s. Now, you know, at this point, I don't care anymore. I, that was enough validation for me, and I just came home and got on with my life. But yeah, like I said, I'm working for the future because there there isn't anybody else as avid as I am about certain things that I think matter a lot. And so it it took a lot of standing in the ring with the Anglophile Thoreau experts and just fighting for my right to talk about historical esotericism. But the English-speaking Thoreau world has just blanketed uh, the phenomena in the 20th century. What Crowley did to commercialize his name has meant that everybody got to plow into that ghetto and dog paddle around, and only a few can ever get out to the rest of the landscape, you know. But... I'm glad to say, uh, since the year 2000, the Europeans have been picking up their flag again, and they're starting to reissue the older decks, and they're doing yes. more work on the Marseille tradition, and, the, uh, and I'm right now engaged in this kind of reawakening to the Arabic inheritance through Spain and through southern Italy. So there will be more petals grow out on this flower. And this is what's thrilling, this resurgence of the continental idea. I felt very wilted in where the new age has taken us from the 70s into the idea of every kind of oracle deck and add water and stir mysticism and I don't know. I speak a lot about facsimiles, this mirroring out. It's a fractaling Certainly, it's it's the maths there. Every the maths everywhere, but it's it's like a pale version, and yeah. I don't see a lot of people tracing it back to the core, to the kernel, where the juice is, where that the core is. Which you actually mentioned that the spindle, right? I, I mentioned what the in your oh the in spindle of necessity. Yes, yes, yes that's something I got from the uh, Greek philosophers. Yeah. And that, actually, the model comes from the apple. Yes. The beautiful apple that comes off the tree, and you can eat the thing and throw the core away, and you took the temporary part, and you threw away the permanent part. <laughs> you know, and this happens over and over again. Everybody wants to eat the pickings from the soft fruit, but they don't realize all the future apples are contained in that seed. <laughs> You know, that's where the real power is. So for every 100,000 people who get a knockoff throw and play with it, <laughs> there'll be a few who want to follow it back. And, you know, there was, in the defense of the English deck, 
the movement of surrealism brought a new emphasis to the image as throughout the 20th century bloomed forth into millions and millions of decks, all looking different and with a different slant and a different feel, because from the point of view of the dream touch, from the point of view of the unconscious, you know, the unconscious can use anything. Yeah. You. It, can, it can reach you through any different body of symbols that might be at hand, right? So from that point of view, any tarot deck will prime the pump of the imagination and stir up the intuition and start to help the person create meaningful synchronicities that will assist them in thinking differently about the world. And so that is absolutely true, and that is indeed the final gift that the English decks bring to us. They don't necessarily have uh, esoteric continuity behind the hundred years of their existence. They don't hook in with the inherited tradition, but they liberated the eye and liberated the imagination to play with Tarot in a much less formal way than it had traveled before. But then when you say, okay, well, what happened before these guys? You run into the Masonic wall. Yes. Because all, everybody who was writing for that time was basically coming out of either Masonic or Rosicrucian context or one of the higher orders that had disappeared up into the rafters of those guys. And I spent a lot of time deploring why can't I get in when I, uh, at the beginning, taking things superficially for granted. I'd been lucky enough to come into uh, several books out of a Mason's library. His family hadn't known what to do with so they sold it to a used bookstore in Salem, Oregon, and those were the books I bought first and foremost. So my grandfather saw what I was carrying around reading my first year of college, and he said, what are you doing with that? <laughs> this is what we study at my lodge in Seattle. You know, that's a girl. That's not a toy. And that's when I said, ah, ha, ha. So then I thought for a while that maybe I was left out because I was female. But yes. literally the way these things go, my magnet is so avid that uh, the books I needed just would jump out at. And now I live in this wonderful library that I don't have to go anywhere and I can research anything I want. It's like, and I know there's great stuff out there I, don't, I haven't seen yet, but let me tell you, I am surrounded by the classics. And, and they're, I'm capable of coming to my own conclusions about things now. So I, I, I rely less on what's officially true. I really doubt my way through everything and resonate it with my own tuning fork. Yes. Because again, having gone all the way back and pondered this mystery of the ancient alphabet and realized, oh, oh, this 22-unit alphabet is the ephemeris that took over the world basically, even though it started out as numbers and placeholders in the ancient Babylonian ephemeris, but once the Phoenicians made them into a, you know, writing tool for keeping track of what's in the sky and what's down in the hole of their trading ships, then that was it. Wherever the ephemeris went, the alphabet went, and the whole world got turned on to literacy with literacy, with astronomy, all tied together through this 
and there's Tarot organized by the same model. I love how the War of the Ten and Twelve, which people are still in some sort of strange opposition with when it's not a war at all. <laughs> it's They come together. They need to be together. They are integral. Yeah, it's part of the dogma of English school that all these things are separate and you don't get to study them unless you come through our door <laughs> and unless we initiate you this way and that way. So there's a lot of uh, dogma that you have to sort of flow up to say, well, look, I can know this if I want to and I'll just follow through other channels. You know, there isn't any, there's not just one way to get to the heart of this because, like I said, there's astronomies all over the world. And the things that build out of just the vocabulary of astronomy, like geomancy, for example, which is practiced all over uh, North Africa and came into Europe, again, with the same uh, Arabic gush of information after the Crusades came up to Spain. And uh, the Renaissance Magi got all turned on about that because it's all astrologically denominated. You even write it down on an astrological chart and you read it. As an astronomical, in an astronomical way, using all those categories and terms. And therefore, it was a way of shortcutting astrology because you didn't have to do all the calculations. You just you knew your widgets, you knew what they related to, and, and you mapped them out cosmically, and then you read it as if it was a regular chart. As you see this going through these Western mysteries, you realize, wow, continuity for all of the superficial differentials, you know, like the Hebrew guys didn't study with the Catholics, and the Catholics didn't study with the Lutherans, and the Lutherans didn't study with the pagans, and they didn't study with the Cathars. And, you know, so everybody developed their own version of it in their own silo. But people didn't realize we're all looking at the same book. This, was, this has been remembered and forgotten and remembered and forgotten through many cultural changes, at least in the West. I think the East has better cultural content. In China, for example, they had dynasties of about 600, 700 years. Yeah. Just family. And you get a lot of continuity built up in that period. And the Babylonian temples were, you know, 3,000 years standing at doing their job, getting more and more built out, more and more sophisticated and crazy. But, you know, they're... At different times on the planet, we've had better continuity than we have right now. And so these things are based very deep. And there's actually a physicist named Douglas Boat, D-O-G-H-T, who is pretty convinced and pretty convincing. He's not the only one saying this. I've run across this many different ways through the years, that the Hebrew alphabet, or whatever however you might want to denominate it, Arabic alphabet, whatever, is a tool left over from our humanity's previous faith culture. It's actually the letter forms, when you project them onto a sphere, actually represent the 22 facets of a spherical space. And you're looking at different operations of the magnet, different portions of the torus, so to speak, of the solar system. I mean, it's fractal, so it's galactic, it's solar, it's planetary, it's psychological, you know, going up and down the scale, but that everything is modeled on a torus, and different energies are captured at different stages of the torus process. That's 
an invention from our previous space There's something that is going on right now with a resurgence of the time before, and we've seen it with the idea of Atlantis and Lemuria, Mu, all this in my head, and in the way these things spin round, I am always seeing the idea of the Mandelbrot, the fractal, the mirroring, the spiraling. And so it makes sense to me that there is this grand spiral, this grand helix, if you will, that what we have now that we can move back to as early as we are able to move back, we see that this high intelligence was there. And so like that apple core, the seeds there and i'm wondering where you stand with or what are the ideas that spin round in your sun and your world about this time before time as we know it now our ancient of ancients and of course this is with the idea of linearity and not even talking about multiples and uh fractals of universes, the multiverse and all that stuff, if we just yeah. go point to point. Yeah, keeping it simple. Well, again, uh, I'm imagining in my mind the Taurus, which I've already posted as an image for the individual human, but also you could see it as uh, the bar magnet of the Earth, and you can also see it as the aura of the sun, all the planets circulating around it, but the sun then becomes the magnet inside of which we're all embedded. So at every scale, whether you look at it personally or supercosmically, again, if the Hebrews are right, reality emerges from the center. And in the human school, or it emerges from the heart and it pours out the eye and all, all directions, really, out you know, upper chakras, and then wraps around and is taken up from below to the lower chakras. So the heart is the conversion chamber for all the different extended directions and the pulsing uh, force that keeps the whole thing moving. So I will then imagine a three-world scenario superimposed over the Taurus idea. And the emanating end I think of as the head and the sucking in end I think of as the tail. Right. So whether you're talking about you know energy vortex as you're watching the water go down the sink in your kitchen or whether you're talking about yourself as an energy vortex or a landscape feature as an energy vortex, or the planet itself, it's all the same. These are all modeling back and forth the same dynamic on different scales. So basically, from that point of view, and it's not the only point of view, you know, the shamanic tree is viewed as being upside down. Uh, the shamanic energy body is seen like the hangman, feet in the air and the head pointing down. So, we do sometimes flip the bar magnet and point ourselves in different directions, you know, in the course of our self-transformation. But if there's something that any of us are doing, there's something that the human species is doing, it's 
pushing into consciousness those things that weren't unconscious. So our job is to process what's coming up. There might be other entities, they might even be on this planet, and their job is to eat and then concentrate on what they eliminate. And that their job is to make more soil or make more raw materials, make more something else. But our job is to take up from below and emanate out from above. Okay, so you might say, well, both of them are an elementary canal, but I would say one job takes celestial energy and pours it down into the earth, and the other job takes earth energy and pours it up to the cosmos. And yes, if you're standing in your Taurus, I hope you're imagining this while we're talking about it, then what pours up through you and out the crown of your head does indeed circulate back down and impact the material plane. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is what fountains up and out. And then the material plane and what happens as a result is then what we have to deal with and what we take in experientially for our next recirculation. So the same thing, the consequences of what we pour out above is what we then have to metabolize and draw in from below. And again, I think it's just as legitimate that there are entities who run their circuitry opposite, although they would be dismantling as fast as I was building, so to say. So that's very ecological, right? Uh, you look at what goes on in the gut, and, you know, there's all kinds of different entities each pursuing their own agenda, and it's not a bad thing unless it gets out of order. So I would say each of us are bubbles in the quantum foam, and the human experiment is to drive towards consciousness, to, to metabolize everything into consciousness, and then push that consciousness out around us think how big of a bubble we can blow, how, how, how much we can create and uh, externalize through that way of being. I'm not thinking like some are that being a human is punishment, although we can each catalog what is punishment about being human. I mean, you know, gravity for one, time for another, much less local circumstances, whatever they are. But if we're responding to the evolutionary age of the urge of our type of creature, then we are busy munching up experience and turning it into consciousness. And that's what the environment depends on us to do. That's our job. If we can do that, then whether the consequences are judged well or ill in the times that we're in, that's the circumstance. Because you can't always be popular can't always be first, can't always get rich, can't always win. You know, the, the goal is to do the job and, and let the consciousness that you produce kind of like lift the bread, right? If we're all making building our own little bubble and expanding in consciousness, then we will raise the loaf among us. But that's what we're here to do. It's not so much about the effects, although there are always effects. But those are sort of baked in the process, our job is to expand in our bubble and become more and more and more coherent with more and more and more reality and more able to be conscious of the things that are for most incarnations remain unconscious. Persistent miracle that all the religions have to take in hand. The fact that 
somebody with absolutely no education whatsoever that's never read the Bible or never read the holy books or never been trained by the holy men can, can go directly to mystic experience without uh, blinking an eye. There are natural spiritual savants everywhere, and they do not depend on any external structure to become what they are because it's inherent in them to do that. This is where I get my supposition that the tip of the wave of human growth and evolution is just to produce more consciousness itself, to, to, to rise the consciousness faster, to inflate the bubble a little more. I'm not talking about the ego bubble. I'm just talking about the comprehension of what is reality, and in particular, what reality we are participating in. Because, of course, there's many aspects of how we don't touch or we don't know we're touching, so it's just the same as not touching. And there's an uh, infinite number of things that are touching us that we are completely unconscious of. But in the process of having the experience and how it plays through our nervous system and how it prints into our imagination and how it tickles our vision with infinite potential, we're right there at the place of witnessing the infinite potential. And if you can hold it there and not be tempted to do something with it, then you don't expend the charge. You're, you're held up by whatever consciousness you're willing to let yourself have, and that itself will show you something. But you can't control what that something is, but you can have the experience, and then if you're lucky, if you have continuity, if, you're, if you don't blink off, you can bring it back and share it with others. If there's something that I have done in this world, it's bridge between the madly intuitive and the madly intellectual. And that's because I was born with a split brain. It is my personal disability. It has been hell on wheels to live with. Uh, but it's the perfect instrument for me at this time to stand between these worlds and grip the intuitive very solidly from one side of me and grip the scientific very, or the you know, astronomical, cosmogonical, architectonic aspects on the other side, and to stay, keep holding them both, keep holding them both, holding them both. And over 40 odd years, I've become pretty good at that, and now these things truly overlap. I am the vesica Pisces between them. And so that's why I no longer question what I'm doing or why in the world I was configured so oddly, because now I understand this is the exact equipment probably created through multiple initiations, which was why I could take that mind dynamics class and have lifetimes worth of things turning on, ding, 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 one right after the other, <laughs> you know, as a, in my late teens. Yes. That's because I happen to live on the West Coast in the Berkeley Bay Area, and this course was available before I went off to college, you know, and literally... That's before I found Tarot, that's before any of these things fleshed in, but within two years, it was all in my hands. And within four years, I'm doing readings for people, my kids are coming, now I'm doing astrology, now I'm doing <laughs> you know, astrology for all kinds of people, now I'm teaching it. You know, I didn't even know I was a writer. I didn't remember that. <laughs> I thought I was just a talker. 
It's remarkable. So one of the things that comes up for me at this sphere of chatting is the idea of what is outside of our line of sight. It reminds me of through the looking glass. And do you see where I'm going with that? Well, I'll tell you what happens to me when you say that. How's that? Because I may see where you're going. Or I may... <laughs> what happens to you, Christine? <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that I want to say is that one of the things we got from Arab culture was understanding of lenses. They actually gave us eyeglasses and telescopes and stuff because they were the ones, they had a deep investment in crystals. And when they figured out how crystals work and how you could cut crystals in order to enhance their effect, then suddenly magic got this brand new category called catoptric, which is the art of reflection, okay? So the mirroring, the reflection, got taken to a very fine science because they figured out if we do this right, we can get near science people to be able to read again, things like that. And we can see the stars that we can bring them in closer. So we have simultaneously a philosophical idea that's backed up by a physical craft and skill that's enhancing everybody's not only sensual experience of the world, but also imaginal experience of the world. So given that that's both a science and a metaphor, we take that forward and say, you know, all of time is condensed down into the moment. It's just a matter of a slight adjustment of your crystal, whether you're looking at the past from the present, whether you're looking at the present from the present, or whether you're looking at the future from the present. Okay? So you started by saying, what's happening that's outside your line of thought, outside of your line of sight? What made me laugh was the realization that the line of sight itself is curved. We keep expecting to be able to just look straight along that line, but it's curved. We learn this from the harmonic sequence, that you play up the octaves, three octaves, and that fourth repetition of the root note is already a little different. And if you go another octave up, it gets more different, another octave up gets more different, and you've left the original note completely. So there is a curve in space. There is a curve in time. It can't be conquered through any kind of linear thinking. We, we have to actually uh, wibble and wobble our way through cycles and turning in order to um, line anything up. So this, again, goes back to the astronomical thinking that nothing holding still and nothing is simple. It's all wheels within wheels. So under that rubric, I want to say, you can only be shown what is immediately on your frequency. So instead of asking, oh, gee, what's outside my line of thought, you think instead, my line of thought is like a ray of divine mind. And while I'm moving along this ray, there is no other thing. Left or right, I'm leaving in, in my dust as I fly along the ray. So, yes, there's many other realities around the corner at all times. But your, if, if you're concentrating on something, then it doesn't matter what you miss, so to speak. It, it, you're in the ray, and the ray is conducting you where your eye and your mind need to land. So it's almost like... Uh, 
expand the bubble idea to being a capillary tube, and your mind is running along this capillary tube or lava tube. And there are edges around it, and so you don't actually leave the tube, but you're conducted at great, at great speed when the lava's running. And, you know, we all, as artists and visionaries, we know what it's like when the lava's running. You know, the gates have opened, the magma rises from deep, we, ha we are in the presence of the alchemical transformation, and then we go where it takes us. And so, at that time, there's nothing, no worries what you might miss because really you're embedded in an experience that's total and all-consuming, and it, it just wants your full attention. And the, the real challenge is to just hold on to it and bring it back, bringing it back. I mean, the only, only proof, proof we have of miracles or high technology or consciousness uh, breakthroughs or any of that are people who could bring it back and write it down. So there's millions of transcendent experiences happening, just like leaves falling off the trees all around us. But the only ones we know about are the people who wrestle it into language and somehow get it sent out into the world. That's the criterion for making a conscious difference. Now, I think that every person's exploration in consciousness make a difference. And I think that that's, again, that's, Everybody's got their bubble. They're tending in the quantum foam, and the foam itself lifts below. You know, we're we are all doing, working together towards the divine goal, whatever was built into us, and that goal has to do with becoming more conscious. So that's what we're all doing as fast as we can. Each of us at our own rate. Each of us working with whatever we've got. I don't think we can do anything else because that's our evolutionary mandate. But we do get battered around by circumstance. So we have to learn an attitude like the foam, you know, like a bubble, rise to the top, float along, don't offer any resistance, you know, be slippery, <laughs> be willing to change your shape when necessary, uh, and also combine with others or rebubble when necessary, but, you know, to hold everything lightly so that we aren't um, so ponderous that we can't pass through some of these narrow spots and some of these challenging uh, circumstances. Yeah. Keeping it light and keeping it real are twin challenges that have to come together. Yeah. So, did, did any of that touch anything you were originally asking? Absolutely. And I love the analogy of the bubble. The bubble and effervescence, air bubbles in water as clay goes down, these have been themes of poetic overture for me for quite a long time. I, I draw a lot of inspiration from that idea. It reminds me of the thoughts about living realities. How do we parse out this idea of the density of matter, which is also, it's a frequency, it is just, it, it's become denser, it's become deeper into the process of material hardness and the hardening and the alchemical aspect but where is the spark of consciousness that is a little bit more effervescent that becomes more than its density well i would say that's tied to curiosity the true cultivator is playing their way forward into they're playing and they're curious and they're open and they're 
not taking anything too seriously. It's kind of the six of cups in the traditional throw where you've got these kids playing in a wall garden and, you know, they're free to exercise their imaginations because there's no threat hanging over them. They're well fed, they're loved, they're allowed to just be free in their own minds and that's a, a joyful moment in life. So that's what I would say is we have to follow what we love, what, what we are so attracted to that it doesn't matter whether anybody ever pays us or not or whether anybody ever gets it or not. You know, the real mission that we're all on is to follow that creative spark inside of us. If that's the, that little drop of God, you know, I think each one of us is a moving question mark in the mind of God. What would happen if Christine what would happen if Denise? You know, and having put the question forward, we're now living out the answer. We're the proof of what would happen. We're it. So each day, we're still inventing and reinventing the answer to this question. What would happen if? And yes, it's true. We miss things. There's paths we don't go down. There's things that maybe we should have looked at earlier, but it took until we got older before we woke up to them. All that stuff, it's all in divine right order. If, if you take the position that all time is now, or that we're in an expanded now, which has the past in it as part of it, and it has the future in it as part of it. So then you're really looking at everything as kind of circles and cycles, and I'm reverberating around inside my bubble and feeding back to myself and past self and future self and present self are all in this conversation together. We're deciding what we're doing as we're doing it. That's the act of being God in your psyche. That right there. It doesn't require any external justification. And you can do it if you're in an isolation cell or at the top of a mountain or you can also do it if you're at your job, having to process 55 people a day. And, you know, everybody has to punch into their reality and perform their body of tasks and activities. But the point of doing it is to have the experience and be curious about what comes of it. Literally, in, in my own, you know, I, I can't say that I have a faith or religion because I'm more one of those temporal low personalities had so many migraine headaches and been driven out of my body with pain so many times. I have the perspective of somebody who's out of body. From that point of view, from sitting on the ledge in the corner of the room while my body rides in the bed, I have many times pondered this question of, you know, what is this about? Why are we doing this? And you know, essentially the answer comes back just learn how to use the equipment better. You know, learn how to become a better exploiter of human potential. Uh, break into some of the more uh, interesting fringes of possibility. Uh, expand on the definition. The family I was born into had absolutely no equipment for understanding the nature of my wiring defect. Quote unquote. And therefore, you know, in the times that I was growing up, there was no remediation and even no acknowledgement. So 
you know, I look at some of the current identity politics issues floating around, and I think, well, yeah. I mean, you know, this is the human experience. Nobody gets it, what each one of us are going through. Each one of us are going through. So unique. It's amazing that we keep these bodies long enough to grow up and do something with them because it really is a difficult uh, path for most of us. And of course, because we're all partial, we don't get the full endowment because uh, that would be, you know, crush us immediately. So we get we get whatever slice we get, and then we get to work on that. And if I didn't think about it as being my own creation, then I would have to be you know, struck with grief and envy of people who are, you know, differently abled or, you know, just all different things that are the culture tempts us with all the time, with all the comparative thinking that says, oh, somebody else got it better than me. But when I, when I get inside my own Taurus and I contemplate the things from the center, I realize I am God looking out through the lens of Christine. And as Hildegard von Bingen said, and she was another migrainer, I'm just lucky that when I have contact with God, I don't die. Because, you know, when you read the Old and New Testament, basically anybody who sees God is immediately sent in the track. So a migraine is a mercy. Might be a seizure. Might be uh, all kinds of hard things on the body, but it doesn't kill you. And in the meanwhile, you get to have a mystical experience if you're use it that So it's just like psychedelics or any other therapeutic tool. You know, it is up to the individual having the circumstance, having the experience, to make meaning out of it. And what just knocks me out, especially after a lifetime of seeing clients, is how easy it is for a person with no sense of meaning to fall into depression and die or instantly, you know, like, get cancer and die, or any of the million of other invitations that there are to drop the body. Uh, if, if you don't cultivate your sense of meaning and you don't have a passionate attachment to why you are here, you won't be saved. Which tells me that anybody that I see walking around, no matter how miserable they are, no matter how crushing their circumstances, or no matter what has happened to them, I figure they chose this, and they're continuing to labor with it heroically because that's what they're here to do. You know, but it took me a long time to stop being, stop trying to rescue everybody, and stop trying to rescue myself, and just really give over to the fact that this very partial, potentially flawed, uh, seemingly incoherent, wacky body of mine is the perfect alchemical system. You know? taking most of my life to really come to those terms. Now that I'm finally living in a way that is coherent with that, which, you know, it just wasn't even possible when I was raising children. I just overrode most of it, like I always had. So I hit the wall and I just, you know, faced the music of what had been going on. It's all part and parcel of being turned on psychically very young and then suddenly walking through this world like an alien for years and decades trying to get it back and realizing how few people even had a match, you know, how few people were having the experiences. So, so to a certain degree, to do spiritual cultivation of any kind through any channel, whether it's religious or 
mystical or magical or artistic or festivic to do anything. You have to develop tremendous amounts of will. And you have to be like the fish throwing yourself up the fish ladder. You've got to be ready for an arduous trial and many times over throwing yourself and not making it or just only moving two inches forward, doing it again, and again. And you know, if it doesn't feel like that, you're probably not getting anything done. Probably not achieving what you came to do. So everything about the way our culture is right now is terrifically hedonistic. People don't like to hear stoic and philosophically dry instructions. But the very first thing that I would tell anybody who is trying to get into uh, self-cultivation is be curious and then stop trying to relieve yourself of your pain. Be curious about what's happening and study it rather than we're looking for a remedy or a fix or how to get out of it. Because whatever it is that's happening to you, that's you happening to you. And if it's not comfortable, then it's because it's something that needs to be adjusted. If you can't fix it, if you can't figure it out. If you keep blaming it on other people, then you're going to constantly give the power to the circumstance rather than taking your power back and saying, you know, I don't want this to feel like this anymore, so maybe I'm going to reinterpret this. Maybe I'm going to, you know, reframe it, or I'm going to constellate it differently inside my world of meaning. I mean, this is what makes me a Jungian, is, is the realization that you do have choice how you interpret your experience. And when you learn to use the myth to help you, then you can use all the past experience of humanity you know, to your advantage, because you can find pieces of it that are floating around inside of yourself that you can kind of stick together in shapes and forms that will help you anchor this part of yourself and that part of yourself. You know, you are your own coral reef and you're no longer just a batch of particles floating around with no roots. You know, a person has to do this. Now, I, I also believe that you can hear it in of me talking that um, this has taken many lifetimes to become this creature that I am right now. And then if I had crossed into that mind dynamic class when I was young, it would have had to jump me different ways. And if it would come on more randomly, maybe later in life, it wouldn't have gotten my attention quite the same. It's the way it came. So I kind of got certain things handed to me on a platter because they all turned on so fast together and it was really obvious something was going on. But I still didn't make sense of it for a long time. And uh, other people told me what they saw. So it took about 10 years of getting told by other people before I started believing. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Maybe this is what I'm doing. You know, but I didn't, I didn't have the terms for it. This is, this is huge. If you do not have the words for something, you can't talk to yourself about it. Yeah. That, that act of making words on new experiences is super important because, as I said earlier, there's lots of people out there having experiences, but if they can't bring it back, they can't put it into concepts they can share with others so that we can compare notes, then it's all siloed off. 
and, and nobody has any way of cross-pollinating or comparing and contrasting because there is no vocabulary. That's how I grew up, no vocabulary for my neurological issue. But I'm glad I didn't have it because it forced me to study esoteric, to get the vocabulary. That's exactly sure why I did it. I was trying to look for places where my experience is being described. You know how they used to tell you, think about uh, you know, who you want to be when you grow up. And this was asked me all through grade school and middle school and high school, and my mother was getting despairing about it because I couldn't focus. I didn't see anything in the culture that looked like something I wanted to do. Finally, I said, look, oh, I'm going to have to be a Renaissance maggot because I just I don't see anything for me to do in this world, but I can go and serve a king with all the stuff I'm interested in. I, I could work in the court. She said, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do that, but uh, now I am 68, and that's what I do. Yes. I'm the uh, metaphysician to kings and queens. Yes. I mean, I'm not bragging about in the outer world, but Literally, the people that I get to see and the work that we get to do, it just blows my mind. These are amazing souls who are traveling in territories that only seeds get to achieve. That's how they find me. You know, I don't do a lot of putting myself out in the world. This is what's remarkable about you as well. You had said, I've said this in, in different words, and art has definitely been my mode of expression everything's art but different modalities of it classical painting and and fiber work and all this and something struck me earlier and as you're speaking now it comes around again in this idea this bigger idea that we create so that we can encounter ourselves now this is most jungian but of course jung is standing on the shoulders of all that came before him as we know as we do and so that kind of emanation is integral in understanding the idea of inner space and how this all is churning round, which has got me wondering your ideas, even though you have presented them here, more on the idea of intent and fate. So living into or intent into pain is one of the things that you were just speaking to. But the idea of the, the columns, intent and fate, where and how do you see that infinity playing out, say, in the personal mythos, at least in your personal mythos, because that's where your zero point is? Well, I'm trying to understand if I've got the question right. When you say intent and fate, you're talking about um, leaving the mark. No. Uh, a trail. No. In in your personal mythos, so the fate of of circumstance, fate. yeah, fate, F A T E. Uh, I get it. Yeah, and then your intent and how those columns are really one column in the end, but we have this idea of serendipity, of providence that moves around some of the stuff that is solid. So the fact that we'll pass from one cowl to another, from 
living to death to living to death, you know, the cycles, the cyclic nature that is fateful. But also when we look at the mystical end of that, even though that is mystical, how people cross paths, how we come into conjunction with others or into aspect with others, even hard squared, that becomes those cornerstones of lessons well fought. And our intent, the idea of intent uh, seems so large. You've been speaking of it. And so I'm wondering, what are your ideas on the stuff that is solid fate? We're born, we die. So the points of the strand that come together to make the circle. Yeah, I think I've got it now. This is a big question for astrologers and tarot readers and everybody who's doing divination because at what point are you imposing yourself on the client's mind versus at what point are you helping them to read themselves so they can know better their own creation. That's a question of, am I interfering with somebody's state or am I assisting at the birth of it? And what I have basically come to is this expanded concept of time like I implied before. The me, the larger entity for which Christine is a finger or a toe, that larger entity is going to do what it's doing through all of its whole incarnational body. Christine here in time and space gets a little portion of that, which I can work with as best I can as long as I stay in coherence with the larger being. Coherence is the issue. This is a frequency issue, although you're asking the question from the point of view given lifetime, but it, it actually, when you shift things to frequency, you realize you can only bring into focus those things that are harmonic with your own frequency, right? Because if there's too much clashing, it breaks up the whole pattern. That's the point of dropping the ball, dropping the body, dropping the project. So we're looking for coherent frequencies, each of us are, that speak back to us our own highest and most interesting resonance. You know, it's why the metaphors of music are so strong when you're talking about uh, magic. Uh, Robert Flood, I'm thinking about in particular, very strong on pointing out the harmonics between the frequencies of light and the frequencies of sound and uh, then the denser frequencies that produce the world through geometry and other methods that we have for, for seeing this process at work. But if you just stay up in the light and sound, just to keep with models that we all understand, if I'm on a piano and there's guitar sitting in the corner and I hit the A on the piano, the A string on the guitar is going to vibrate, even though nobody touched it. This is when I was talking about two spaces, spaces that were tuned for initiatory experiences early on in the architectonic work of a uh, mason. Um, this is exactly what I'm referring to, that we are tuning for, so we are antenna. First and foremost, the kind of field that we create both imposes itself on the outer world and draws out of the world around us the things that are on the same wavelength or that are on compatible frequencies. So in a certain way, that's our real fate. Our fate is determined by our frequency. 
and depending upon what frequencies you linger on the most, those are the things that you will materialize the most. And those will come at you from the environment, and they'll come up inside of you as well. And if you're fighting with them, then that only increases the disharmony and the lack of matching. And so the what's called a fugue state, everything falls apart. So it's up to us to maintain the frequencies of consciousness that are most characteristic of ourselves, but especially our inner child, our inner bright light, our curiosity and creativity. These are the frequencies, if we hold them up like in the hermit lantern, hold those up and, and uh, use those to light our way, then we would be, always be drawn towards things that are on that same frequency, things that are evolutionary, things that heal us and expand us and turn us on and uh, increase the progress of enlightenment, however we are doing it. So we do have to take time and trouble to identify with the upper frequencies as much as possible, whatever those are for ourselves. The, the, equivalent of solar light full of all the colors, the equivalent of, you know, the harmonic sequence unfolding out of a single note. Uh, when things are well-tuned and well-timed and harmoniously arranged, then you get expansion and coherence and recognition, uh, Again, creativity and inventiveness and all the great blessings just seem to fall into place naturally. And that's kind of the sexagesimal grid of the astronomers uh, using the math of 60 times 10, they discovered was the way they could track circles and cycles without fractions. And doing things without fractions means you can do all kinds of calculations very easily. So this is one of those attunement things. You figure out the right divisor, the right premises to use to create your equation, then you will sort things out in their cleanest categories and you'll understand them with the least amount of friction and the least amount of uh, clashing agendas and you know, neurotic dithering, whatever. So it is very much like the mathematicians discovering that you can work on space, you can travel in space, whether it's across deserts, across oceans, or from one planet to another, same issue, by calculating everything in the sexagesimal mass, it's clean, it's tidy, it doesn't produce a lot of irregularities, and you know what you're doing. So that insight can be carried over into whatever you're doing. So I'm not saying that you have to measure everything sexagesimally. I'm saying for everything that a person wants to engage themselves with, and experience and commit to and grow with, they will find the scale, they will find the terms, they will find the denominator, the, the proper tools for handling the materials there so that they can stay in harmony with it. So you're not just attacking what you're interested in and breaking it up with stupid shards and then naming the shards, but instead you're interacting with the whole in its highest level of function. And then you're becoming like that. You're becoming more like that yourself. And therefore, you can then be with it enough to learn about it. And again, be coherent enough to bring back what you learned. So it's all about coherence. 
you know, everything exists in its own place in the cosmos. But I think I started towards saying this earlier, but across all the religions, one of the things that humanity tells itself over and over again is we're the creature that is, can be born in Earth but travel to the stars and do so in consciousness without ever having to leave time space. So we span the distance between the animals and the gods. So we, with our the type of consciousness we have, we can go anywhere and do anything we can conceive. That is our gift. Unfortunately, if we can't, if our conceptions are small and our imagination is small and we aren't feeding it and we aren't resonating at our own higher frequencies, whatever those are, then we're not having the joy that would lead us forward into more exploration. Instead, we're feeling punished, or we're feeling shame, or we're feeling inadequate, or in some way shutting down. I guess my answer to faith is you make your own faith by your response to what's happening right now. Yes, you are trapped in your chart for as long as you have this body, or you you don't see it as trapped, but you're conditioned by and contained within and working with the potentials that are uh, present there. But all of that is enough to have a full life if you engage with life fully. And those who won't engage with life fully, they will blame the environment or people around them or what didn't happen when they were young or blah, blah, blah. But they are themselves withholding their engagement having a bunch of conditional thoughts about why I, it's more important for me to protect myself than to be grow. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything that holds us back except our own limited thinking, which at any point can be turned back on again. That's why they're now exploring psilocybin there. Yes. What do you see as the in-between, where we go after we leave here. So we're the idea of, I guess, to make it common, the idea of death and where does our consciousness go when we get past this gate, this trek in the underworld, so to speak, or the inner world. Yeah. yeah. Well, I just identify with being a ray of light, which means I may see myself in a certain portion of the ray that appears in the time space, but even when, this vehicle falls apart and drops away, I will still be participating in my ray. That ray of light goes throughout the universe and has experiences all along the way. And some of them are lifetimes. Some of them are just traveling on the ray. So I think that's what I'll be doing when I'm done being seen, is I'll just retreat back to my originating central premise, which is, I'm a question mark in the mind of God. Where would you like to send me next? You know, where am I going next? I'll be open to <laughs> seeing and finding out. I've always assumed that time and space will collapse and that I'll be able to rest and ponder eternity for a little while and be more quiet. I'm the one who's, you know, with this motion dizziness disorder and this crazy mismatched brain. So, I, I think it would be relaxing to be dead because I won't be reeling all the time and uh, having this, living in this Escher world. But I think for everybody, it's very taxing to have a body. It's very, um, you know, constant demand, constant upset, and 
know, the forms of emotion. Everybody with their causes charging around, banging with each other. So, you know, there's lots of ways where I think of dying like I think of falling asleep at night. That, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll get some rest. But I'll be kicked out of my ray again later for whatever reason because if it's any, anything that matches this life, then I'll be sent into another situation. I'll be rescuing forgotten information that's so essential we need to have it back. You know, I think that's what I do. So besides the idea of this perpetual, well, the whole Lotus thing and this perpetual exploration and understanding of this inner experience. So this is kind of for the materialists out there, uh, which I am not. I mean, to the extent that, I mean, I am as far as I need to be, and I enjoy my beautiful bubble you know, on that level. However, I keep getting this question from people about the point, and I have answered it in ways that resonate with me at this time because it shifts of course as i shift and grow and move forward and backwards through this experience and sideways and every other way every other way yeah yeah right and um <laughs> emanate as i emanate you see what i'm saying there's this question that comes from really hardcore materialists or atheistic ideas that there's just nothingness and the nothingness is everything and they welcome that once they're done with this experience. But that just seems like such a deeply nihilistic way of perceiving everything. Uh, it, it seems rather lonesome and grim and Bahasian and I don't know. That's again not how I'm perceiving the blackness is anything but that to me and yet it is everything. Yes, well those of us who understand that the generative darkness don't actually believe that anything is going to stop, you know, because <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is the ray of light coursing through but the darkness? And the darkness is the context for the light, or without the darkness you wouldn't see the light. All this kind of mutually inclusive, paradoxical, inside-outside kind of question. There is a point where you're just looking at the Tai Chi and it's circulating around in your hand. <laughs> And it's not going to stop to explain itself. But when you talk about the point, I go back to the parallel word meaning. I go back to meaning because a person with no meaning can die of a hanging nail. And a person who has a sense of meaning will live on past what would have killed an elephant. So, again, we ourselves either generate more reality, which then motivates us to go forward and have more experiences, which then gives us a sense of peace. Or, on the other hand, we start to close off and hold back and say, I don't want to, and this isn't good enough, and why are you bothering me anyway? And then at a certain point, the meaning all goes away, and you, you know, find a reason to stay. So, I would say there is a a single point, I think, in the quantum foam, there's each point is growing its own bubble, and no two are alike. 
but each one has a full range of meaning going on inside of it as it's experiencing itself. And if it doesn't, then as a bubble collapses. So now I also and simultaneously in this paradoxical brain of mine can still hold a space open for God, quote unquote. But I will see God as the biggest Taurus, right? The macro Taurus, inside of which the rest of us are flowing like iron filings around the magnet. And I do think God has projects she's doing. I think there is something being brought through humanity as a whole where, you know, this evolutionary experiment of how can we use our antenna is constantly unfolding new potentials and new experiences. And so being an antenna, as I think we are, a magnetic generator or, you know, a circuit, being uh, energized in the way that we are to encounter the world as actors that stir things up and set off consequences and create outcomes that then, again, set us off to have more experiences and have more outcomes. That process is our meat. The thing of just getting up and chugging around and seeing what happens and then responding to it and then seeing what happens. For each, each human, that's the track world. But we're all little pieces, little uh, parts of the questions forming in the divine mind and those larger meanings are addressed through generations and through the cultures and through the centuries. So God has a very complicated mind. She's super creative and she's super turned on about the experiment, the human stuff. She's also super turned on about everything else that's happening on the planet, anything that is possible, she's in favor of. It's a yes, yes, and, and universe <laughs> where Anything you can imagine will then be funded and you could run off and do it. But, but then you have to hold it up because it's going to collapse like the bubble if you're not. As we look outward from ourselves and into the collective, into this big pool that is the collective, uh, unconscious, if you will, and we see this world around that is swirling and it's in in flux and change and there's lots of chaotic things going on you know from weather to worrying and the state of things right now how do you read that i honestly think that we are at the end of one of these civilization cycles we are currently watching a wave coming at us from galactic center it's uh, has started overtaking the solar system. We're in the midst of it. It, it is altering our weather, and altering our conductivity, our electrical situation, um, and that we are going into what's going to be um, a very, very difficult time for humanity. And part of it is that's part of what's driving us crazy right now and why we're all behaving so badly and uh, lost in our private freakouts because our bodies are registering something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And it goes along with the sixth grade extinction, and it goes along with all the climate change, 
and the fact that the you know, magnetic poles are on walkabout and the climate is changing on planets and moons all through the solar system. So all this stuff is going on simultaneously. It's much bigger than just us. It's a, it's a solar system-wide phenomena. It's a galactic phenomenon. Uh, but we are in, as things expand from galactic centers, and we get our portion of it, and, and so we are heading into what I think is going to be the next dark age. And I don't think it's going to be uh, heating because all the mechanisms of heating drive towards cloud nucleation, greater flooding, uh, thicker skies, uh, more reflection of the sun's light instead of absorption. And so really, in the end, we're going to be heading for the cold. And when I was growing up in the 70s, it was the ice age they were telling us we would have to prepare for. And now I think we're there. I think we're, we're going to see it in the next five or ten years. Yeah. So we're right about our noses pressed up against an evolutionary change, the likes of which we haven't seen in 14,000 years or so. And so we are totally not prepared as a civilization. Uh, and so, uh, although I think our governments know, yes. I think it is known at various levels assaulted all through the population, but people are self-sorting. They will decide for themselves what they want to believe in, what's real to them, what they're going to do anything about, what matters, and, and that's the sovereign right of every soul to focus on what's most meaningful to you. So every soul right now, I think, is, getting, is here getting their PhD and finishing up um, multiple cycles of life. So rather than even judge or prepare, I assume that we're all just here for the ride, knowing that we're the earthquake generation, we're the roller coaster generation. Anybody who's here is here for this experience or some portion of it. And, um, you know, I used to weep when I was pregnant with my kids. You know, I'd have an attack of conscience with each one of them. Like, why am I bringing them into this world? And, of course, my kids now have grade school kids, you know, I'm sure they're having the same feelings, but we're here to have this experience, what it is. That's yeah. what we're here. No bigger, no smaller than that. And whatever sincerity and uh, clarity and uh, confidence in the life wave that we can muster, that's uh, what we will deal, that's what we'll bring to the experience. You know, so of course, we want to encourage everybody to have their most trusting and optimistic and creative uh, forward-thinking ideas that they can and not waste too much time wailing and grieving and gnashing our teeth because, yeah, the losses are going to be huge and we haven't seen a, a bit of it yet, basically. Yeah. Um, we're just on the fringes of the changes and it's going to definitely separate the sheep from the goats and each person is going to get to find out what their personal frequency brings them. Mm. So we're, we're outside of the statistical odds. It's all synchronicity now. This would be um, the singularity that yes. is being talked about most of our life. And you know, we were heading into it. We're still heading into it. We'll be heading into it. But this, this is it. Yes. Just trading deeper and deeper into that time when the unpredictable is now ruling everything. And what I really got from that article on synchronicity 
writing about synchronicity and psyche, is that what we call the Mercurius, which is the seeming character in our unconscious that feeds new ideas in from below. Uh, so they seem to rise up from the collective unconscious to the personal unconscious in, into the dream time or into our fantasy world, and from there we start to toy with these things and begin to go, wait a minute, is that a feature of reality, you know, and, and then suddenly now the bridge is being completed between eternity and time and space. But it's fed up from below by Mercurius, who in many both psychological and religious contexts is seen as Lucifer or the devil, so the pattern breaker, the one who doesn't leave you well enough alone, the one who stirs the pot, who throws in, you know, a fly into the ice, the one who upsets the apple cart, trickster uh, So the paradox is our own future self is who is disturbing our own what, what and who we are becoming what, the, the part of us that's trying to get us engaged towards the future is coming at us through the unconscious and is throwing up precognitive insights in response to what's coming what itself is producing for us or through us. So it's like here at the Kabbalah tree, the middle pillar is the now of the now, and you could see the left-hand pillar as the past and the right-hand pillar as the future, but they're both hands of the now, and they're passing your reality back and forth, up and down, around and around, you know, through these different lengths or different points of view of what has been, what is, what could be. And all those things are, are mediated by the activity of the self. So even if you're completely unconscious of it, you're creating your own future through your unconsciousness. If you become conscious of it, you're creating your own future through however much consciousness you can create. But that future is yourself reaching back to the present and reaching up from below. So and the mystery is, what will rise and come pouring out the top when your future self disturbs you from below? You know, Jung said that the archetypes are the product of friction. They're the product of a not smooth flow. They don't show up when things are going easily. A happy materialist doesn't do spiritual search. <laughs> they don't need to because their material plane is working and they believe in the material plane. Everything is working. My mother is this way. She is, has had a charmed life, not one iota religious or spiritual, and she will be the first to tell you that. That's why she looks at everything I write. She's just in wonder because she has no idea where I'm going. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because she is installed perfectly as herself into this incarnation where it was time for her to have a good one. Yeah. You know? Yeah, things happen setbacks, challenges, whatever, but she's a, she rides to the occasion and makes it work. And in no way would I want to disturb her peace of mind with any of the kind of surging and struggling and stressing that I've been through. Because that's, yeah. you know, that's my burden to bear, and that's because of the vehicle I created for myself. Let her enjoy the, the trines. Yeah, she can just, you know, that's hers. And, and she keeps uh, doing it, 
So I figure that's her frequency. She came to have a life that worked out for her, and I think it's beautiful to see because there's plenty of examples of lives that don't work out very well, of people who, you know, have to suffer horrendously in order to gain whatever progress they're achieving. But, yeah. you know, the suffering is relative. I mean, I'm a stoic. I believe what the Greeks said. If you want change, there will be friction. Yes. Friction makes heat. <laughs> when there's heat, there's pain. So if you think there's going to be some change that have to happen, you better be ready to That's a electric thing, too, the pressure. Yeah. Yeah, if you're not throbbing, then maybe you're just asleep. <laughs> or something. <laughs> not taking No, I feel like I always took astrology from wherever perspective, if you're looking down or up, uh, you know, Indra's net, whichever way you want to look at it. I always viewed it as my syllabus that I created in some way or form, my, my larger me or smaller me, however you want to approach it, into what I was going to encounter, which is why I have the grand T-square, why everything has just been hard hard fought, hard wrought in the fires. I'm glad I did. I've never come from a victim mentality. And so that's another one of those signs that I had somehow had a hand in the beautiful waves, the beautiful white caps of the river I've flowed down. Yeah, you didn't come for the smooth water. No, not at all. And, and this time frame also, to me, this is like one of the major events to be part of and observing and witnessing and in the mix of. This is a very exciting time. Put your life vest on or whatever you need to feel secure in it. But this is the time for me. I feel like this is this is why I came. I came to be part of this in whatever capacity that means ultimately. Because ultimately it does come back to that little light inside. Mm -hmm. Which is totally timeless and spaceless and will never be extinguished no matter what happens in the external circumstance. Some know that, and some wish they could believe that. It's a very different reality. <laughs> people who have possession of their immortal self versus people who don't. This is one of those things that I, I love, is the idea of the immortal self. I've always resonated with it. It amazes me how often that gets misconstrued, the idea of it. And then how it can be layered on as an egoic thing when it's absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, what is this inversion of it? There's so much more. I, I feel like I've just touched the surface with you. I am in gratitude for this deep immersion with you, Christine. The moment I realized who you were, that you had been in my life, without me knowing it, your footprints, and then when your pictorials came, when your symbols came, and then, boom, here we are. This is gratifying, beautiful, reminds me that synchronicity is such an important factor for me in my opening and awareness and moving forward. And so I thank you. Is there anything you would like to leave the people with, uh, where they could find you? I'm certainly going to have everything in the show notes. Good. Yeah, yeah. Put, put the website for com. 
because those two books, and I want to say the reason why you didn't recognize the covers on the box and the first book and see what was inside is because even though Michael made the art for the decks, he commissioned his own brother, Patrick Dowers, to do the, the cover portraits and really hung on to that for a long time because he really loved those commissioned works that he asked for so specifically. But we have discovered, I guess, to our eternal awakening, that it pleases the trade to see art from the deck on the box. And so now when you buy a copy of the Tarot of the Holy Light, it has new boxes that match what's inside. Oh, but interesting. Has Patrick Dower's commissioned cover on the green cover of the book, for volume one. Yeah. And both volumes, it takes both volumes to actually cover the territory. Volume one is your operator's manual. Volume two, which is called uh, Foundations of the Esoteric Tradition, is the historical work I did in order to justify the choices I made for the Tarot of the Holy Land. And it's remarkable. I've always suggested to everyone they have to buy this all as a set. And it's not for any, I just met you. It's because I found it in, integral. This is a set, these three things together. Mm-hmm. Really, the book Foundations of the Esoteric Tradition were chapters of, that I would have put in the first the first book as appendices, but they just got too big. <laughs> <laughs> When I saw the deck, I was blown away by just three cards on an Instagram post. <laughs> well, you know, Michael came up through the world of cartooning, alternative publishing, and then finally found his way to Fantagraphics with Edgar with them when I uh, he and I met. And he's a convicted surrealist himself, and so plus a product of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was just the perfect man to make a deck of 78 one-panel cartoons using the black and white line, line art from the alchemical diagrams of the 1600s. So it was just a wonderful project to work on with him. I am immensely gratified by his native response to it all. Jumping in with both feet, because people have been telling me all my life that they would like to make a deck with me, but they're waiting for me to tell them every brushstroke. And Michael was not that way at all. He was like, well, give me that and give me that. And that was what I needed to see. It was somebody who could feel it for themselves and didn't necessarily need me to be the midwife every second. Well, this is... It took you two to create this. It's so apparent. I mean, it's my favorite. I have hundreds of decks. It is beyond every deck. I love all the decks, the continental stuff especially, but it took this combination of you and Michael to birth this and give it to the collective. Well, I'm humbled. Thank you very much. We are both very thrilled to have been you to universe in this way. Do you have anything coming forward that you would like to present? Well, I'm still trying to figure out whether I can finish up this little book on the Judy Picard deck. You'll find at our uh, website, we've Michael colored another tarot deck. It's a historical deck from 1906. Ooh. Uh, very interesting in the Spanish school, but I just keep finding more and more stuff, and I can't seem to finish this book. that. <laughs> And also there will be a workbook for Tarot of the Holy Light that 
goes back, I think I'll have to go back to the 1100s and talk about how the model of astrology hit Europe and then how people can um, unpack their deck and use it alchemically, cabalistically, esoterically on themselves, Ooh. using their birth chart and doing their own work depending on self-guided kind of thing. So oh, dear, be, Christine, get that done. <laughs> uh, I know. It's, it's been a long time coming. People have been asking me if I would write an astrology book for a lot of years. Now I realize this workbook will be my astrology book, but it's going to be on Renaissance astrology. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> I know. I know. It's very exciting for me. Like, I'm here I am with my little dowsing rod, you know, going through my master. It's like, okay, where are you? I know you're in here you find me. I need these pieces. So it's coming out. Uh, I think I'll be spending this winter uh, writing maybe next winter, too. Oh, wonderful. I'm ex as excited for that as I have been to get the black books from Jung and then the red book previously. This is that's on that level. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't need to be on Jung's level, but uh, oh. I'm great to be working in the same territory. Yes. Again, thank you, and we'll end here. This has been a great pleasure, and many, many, many blessings to you and your family and tribe. Thank you so much for having me, Nish. It's been a really nice afternoon, and um, maybe we'll do some other things together down the line. Yes, I would love that. Until then, have sweet dreams. Thank you. Good night. Good night. And there she goes, Christine... Towler. It was a great privilege to speak with Christine. She's a sacred elder, and I am moved by her work in the world, and so I'm glad I was able to share this chat with Christine. I would like to thank the producers of this program, Jason Lampson, Michael Watcher, Melanie Poe, Christy Tesmer, and Marin Kramer, as well as all the other patrons through my Patreon page. I am ever grateful. Thank you for funding this project as it moves forward. Sweet dreams. And remember, every time you close your eyes, you have the opportunity to move into new territory to pierce the veil of another realm and other dimensions through the act of dreaming. Abiento.